Would you please pray with me, please? Great God and Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you give us the incredible opportunity to come together freely in a space and worship you, to join in your great narrative of scripture as we sit between your resurrection and recreation, the final recreation of all things. God, we thank you that we get to be players in your play. We thank you that we get to be actors in your great story. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would teach us. I pray that your word would be the final authority on this stage this morning. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Man, I, it's good to be home. It's good to be home. You know, I look around, I looked back on stage, and I seen Dekayla. When I came here, Dekayla Noble was in the sixth grade. <laughs> and I look at her as, as, a, as a grown teenager, and I remember when she was in the sixth grade. I look at Justice, and remember when he and Sienna were, were in the sixth and seventh grade. Justice in the fifth grade, I think, when I came here. Man, and it's beautiful that I've had the opportunity to watch them grow. And in the same right and fashion, I came here when I was 20 years old. And man, am I thankful that you guys like watched me grow and didn't like light me on fire and kick me out. <laughs> Through all the phases, it's really beautiful. And it's really awesome. Uh, just a few things before we get started this morning. Uh, thing one, can we in gratefulness give a round of applause for our pastor? I don't know if you guys realize this, but every church doesn't have a great pastor. It's actually in these days pretty rare. And Ryan Johnston's presence here in Northeast Ohio is true evidence of God's providence and true evidence that God has a plan and he wants to see Northeast Ohio saturated with the gospel. And second, Second thing before we get started, in the 1800s, the slaves would sing a spiritual, and I'm not going to sing it because I'm terrible at singing, but the slave spiritual went a little something like this. I've got, a, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It made the lame to walk and the blind to see. It opened prison doors and set the captives free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well down in my soul. Spring up a well and make me whole. Spring up a well and give to me that life eternally. And you see, this is one of the things that kept the slaves going. And they would repeat it over and over and over again. And they would sing it in the fields. And they would sing it at weddings. And they would sing it even though the current situation seemed as if it was insurmountable. They had this belief that stems from Ezekiel chapter 47. When God gives Ezekiel a picture of the temple of God, even though they're in exile, even though they're in slavery, he gives them a picture of this temple. You see, the temple in the Old Testament is a place where God's presence dwelt. It was a place uniquely where there was a thin space between heaven and earth, and God's presence would come, and God's presence would cleanse, and God's presence would atone. And Ezekiel sees this picture of the temple that lay waste and lay desolate, being brought back to life, 
Rivers of living water are flowing out of this temple. And church, I come to tell you today that in the New Testament, because of who Jesus is, because Jesus was born a man, because Jesus died for us, because Jesus lived a perfect life, and most of all, I know it's not Easter, but because he rose from the dead, we now are the temple of the living God, and we now have rivers of living water flowing from us. And listen, guys, healthy churches plant healthy churches. The reason we exist at Citizens of Akron is because the Holy Spirit here Rivers of water are flowing, and now they're flowing through forgotten communities in Akron, and we praise God for that. We praise God for that. All right? So let's get started. I talked a little bit about my very distant heritage in the transatlantic slave trade, but now I'll talk <laughs> about my more immediate heritage. So as many of you know, I am from Barberton, Ohio. I'm from the Akron area. I live and, well, I lived and grew up in a community in Barberton that rubs right up against Akron and Kenmore. So it's a little different. If you're thinking Barbertucky, Snydertown is not Barbertucky. <laughs> Snydertown's a little different. There are African Americans, Serbian refugees, and poor people in Snydertown. That's where I grew up. That's my home. And I went to a middle school in Snydertown, Barberton, Ohio, called Uolite Middle School. It's not actually there anymore. I feel old saying that. They turned it into something else because it was pretty cruddy. But back at Uolite Middle School, it was a very unique place, and it was in a very unique position. Because I lived in Barberton and not actually in Akron, we didn't play sports in the city series. We played sports in something that was called the Suburban League. Now, even though Barberton is like country and hood at the same time, not much of it is suburban at all. It is, in fact, a suburban area of Barberton. So when I was in middle school and I was in the eighth grade, because we were a predominantly African-American school, we were really good at basketball. <laughs> I'm talking like we were really good. Out of 16 games, we won 15. We were, like, sweet. And one of the reasons why we won a whole ton of games is literally because we jumped really high, we ran really fast, and we were going to out-athletic you. You weren't going to run faster than us. You weren't going to get rebounds over us. And it was all because of the fact that we were more athletic than the people we were playing. Now, our coach was a guy named Dan Donnelly. He was a teacher, and now he is a teacher still. But Dan Donnelly would preach to us every practice. Like, if Dan Donnelly was preaching the gospel, people would get saved. But he would preach to us basketball every single practice. And he'd come into practice, and he'd see us goofing off. We were in the eighth grade, and many people on my team could dunk. Like, it was crazy. So he would come into practice, and he would say to us all the time, he would say, look, guys, I know you're going to beat the team tomorrow because you run faster and you jump higher, but my goodness, would you box out? When you catch the ball, can you go to triple threat stance? When you shoot the ball, could you follow your shot? And he would always tell us, hey, the proper posture is going to beat good athletics at the end of the day. The more disciplined team is going to win at the end of the day. And during the season, we went. We didn't listen to him. We were like, whatever. You don't know anything, Dan Donnelly. So we're going to run and gun. It was like Showtime Lakers in middle school. So we're running and gunning. We win 15 games. We lose one. 
just, it was a close game. We lost it. So we go to the playoffs, right? And we're eighth graders in the playoffs. And we face a team from a place called Solon. And this team from up near Solon was actually probably three-fourths as athletic as we were. But this team from Solon started demolishing us. And you see, they started demolishing us because we would run at the three-point line to block their shot like we did everybody else. But they would be in three-point stance. And they would pump fake us. And we would fly by them. And they would drive to the basket and they would get easy layups. Because we weren't in triple-point stance and because we were trying to be Allen Iverson with all these crossovers, they would swipe the ball and steal it. And they would run to the rim. We ended up losing in the playoffs in the first round by nearly 30 points. And you see, we lost in the first round of the playoffs by nearly 30 points because we had poor posture, because we were not disciplined. Because you see, at the end of the day, poor posture leads to poor practice, and poor practice leads to a poor product. You see, this truth is not only applicable for athletics, but this truth is applicable in our health. You see, a, a medical blogger named Peter Gorinsky says that poor posture over time can worsen depression and stress. It can cause digestive issues. It can lead to hardness of breathing, tension headaches, back and shoulder, and neck pain. All from poor posture. You see, in the context of our health, poor posture is going to lead to poor practice. It's going to eventually lead to a poor life product. And you see the same thing, the very same truth is going to be applicable for us as Christians, us who believe in the reign of God, those of us who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, those of us who walk with God, our posture is actually incredibly important. And we here at the chapel have been walking through the gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 10. And today we're going to look at a text that is verse 13 through verse 31. And this text is going to contain two stories. But I believe that the hinge pin to these texts today are a difference in posture. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these two stories. We're going to draw some truths out. And then we as the church at the end are going to have a little church. Is that okay? Amen. At the end, at the end we're going to have a little church. So if you would, please uh, stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Give you a few seconds if you don't have it. We have it on this wonderful screen. Dave's the man. I'm going to read. And they were bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Let me read that again. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it for, to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, Hmm. but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecution and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last this is God's word and it's true you may be seated so in this text you have two things happening You have two seemingly separate stories happening. And in Mark chapter 10, and in the book of Mark in general, I don't know if you've caught this, but there are a whole bunch of stories that are lumped right after each other. The book of Mark is a fast-paced, fast-moving book that's earmarked by the phrase, and immediately. If you read through it over and over and over again, you're going to see, and immediately they went, and immediately Jesus said, and immediately they did. It's a fast-paced, fast-moving book. It's giving you story after story after story. And sometimes we can look at those stories divorced from their context. And sometimes we can look at those stories as if they have nothing to do with each other. But let me remind you, friends, that all Scripture is inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that it's God-breathed. What that means is the scriptures are the sovereign exhale of God. So the scriptures have this common thread, this common story that is moving all the way through. So seemingly different stories have something existentially under them that are pulling them and weaving them together. I believe that these two stories have something that is existentially weaving them and pulling them together. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two stories, we're going to pull a few things out, and then we're going to talk and have church for a few minutes about the thing that I think, that I believe is pulling them together. Is that all right? Amen. Amen. So story one, verses 13 through 16, people are bringing children to Jesus. Jesus sets out on his way, 
and the parents are bringing the children to Jesus, I want to stop here really, really quickly, right? I know I don't have a kid outside of the womb yet, but I do have a kid inside of the womb. And in a few months here, I'm going to have a little Jada in my arms, right? And I know I'm young, and I know many of you have raised kids and probably grandkids at this point, but I want you to hear this in this text really quick before we even move in this section. The parents brought their kids to Jesus. The parents brought their kids to Jesus. There is nothing more important that we as parents can do than to bring our kids to Jesus. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the veil in the temple was torn, and we can now approach boldly the throne of God through prayer. I ask you parents, are you bringing your kids to Jesus? Is that an important priority in our lives? Is it more important than their social development? Is it more important than their athletics? Is it more important than them getting straight A's, us bringing them to the feet of Jesus, us being the primary disciplers of our kids? Judy and the wonderful ladies and Tim back in children's ministry do a phenomenal job. They do a phenomenal job. Even though Jade is a part of Citizens, she is going to come to Mega Blast VBS here and learn from Judy every summer. It's going to be a little pilgrimage for her. <laughs> every summer. And they do a great job. But there was something special. And, and if I could speak in my Citizens, my Akron language, there was something really dope. There was something really, really dope about these parents because they bought their kids to the feet of Jesus. It was important for them for Jesus to be around them. Is it important for us to have our kids around Jesus? Let's move on into the story. We could stay there for a long time, but let's, let's move on. We've got a lot to cover. So the parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. And... The disciples rebuke the parents and the kids. Because you see, the disciples at this point still don't get it. The disciples become these incredible world changers after the Holy Spirit falls on them. But the disciples are having some issues uh, if you read to the text of the Gospels. So the disciples are like, Jesus is important. Jesus does not have time for the kids. So he rebukes them and sends them away. But then Jesus is going to rebuke his disciples, and he's going to say, let the little ones come to me. And then he's going to speak to all of them, the whole community of people that's right there, and he's going to say that no one enters the kingdom of heaven unless they enter it as a child. Posture number one, the posture of children. When I think about the posture of a child, or when I think about the posture of children, I can't help but think of an example that I see all the time. Uh, one of the pastors at Citizens and the uh, executive director at the well, his name is Zach Cole. And Zach's an interesting guy. We call uh, life with Zach the tornado of Zach Cole. He's constantly going and he's constantly moving. 
But what makes Zach really unique is that in that constant going and in that constant movement, Zach is a phenomenal dad. He's a great dad. He has two little boys. He has another one coming on the way. Uh, Citizens pastors are just having babies right now. Pray for us. (laughs) Carl's having a a baby too here in a few months. But uh, we were having a good Friday service with a like-minded, missional community-driven church in Kenmore. And as we're having this service, um, we didn't have any kids volunteer, so all the kids are in it with us. And it was great. But Zach's uh, youngest, soon-to-be middle son, Beckett, is a really unique little kid. He kind of just has his own way about him. He kind of just does his own thing. I'd like to think that Beckett's a lot like Zach. So during the service, they were sitting across from us, and I'm looking at Zach and Beckett interact the whole service. And I think there's some insight in Zach and Beckett's situation that's going to tell us the posture that Jesus is talking about in this first story. You see the whole, story, the whole service, Beckett was running away from Zach. He's running away from Zach, and Beckett's actually yelling because Beckett likes to yell. And Beckett kind of walks up like this, and he's walking, and he's yelling, and service is happening, and Zach's like telling him to stop. And then Zach tells him, and he reprimands him, and Beckett's countenance changes, and he gets really sad because he really loves Zach. And then Zach picks him up, and he starts to look at Zach. And Zach picks him up, and we start to sing, and Zach starts to worship, and Zach starts to put his arm up. And then you see Beckett put his arm up. And Beckett starts to just mimic his dad. And Beckett's bouncing along with his dad, and Beckett's arm is up. And after the service is over, Beckett's running, and Beckett's yelling. And every time someone tries to stop and reprimand Beckett, the first thing Beckett says to them is, where is my dad? As a matter of fact, when you talk to Beckett, Beckett's common question for you is, where's my dad? I want to be with my dad. I want to follow my dad. Zach's wife, Beth, makes jokes about it all the time, but they'll be at home, and Beckett will just like, the way he plays is he's like, I'm going to the well like dad. So he like puts on his dress shirt, and he gets ready, and he tries to like leave, to the, leave the house to go and be like his dad. You see, Beckett's posture is that Beckett has a faith that leads to following. A faith that leads to following. Beckett has a faith in his dad and who his dad is that causes him to want to be around his dad, that causes him to want to follow his dad wherever he goes, that causes him to want to do the things that his dad does. And you see what I believe that Jesus is saying when he says, no one will enter the kingdom of God unless they have the heart of a child. I believe that that's what he means. Because children, I know myself as a child when I was, I had an undying faith in my mom. And I to this day have an undying faith in my mom that causes me to want to follow her. And the question for us in posture in this first story is, do we have that undying faith that causes us to want to follow? Let's go to the second story. So posture one, the posture of a child, an undying faith that causes us to want to follow. So let's look at posture two. 
Let's get into it. The rich young man and other gospels in the synoptics, he's called the rich young ruler. So for our purposes today, is it okay if we call him the rich young ruler? I like that, the rich young ruler. This story is going to be really, really interesting. And in this text, this is the story that's going to take up the largest part and the story that's going to take up the biggest chunk, the rich young ruler. So as Jesus leaves this encounter with parents and kids and his disciples and a community of individuals, he sets out on his way. And as Jesus sets out on his way, what Jesus runs up against is a man. And this man, from the beginning of this text, is identified as rich. He's identified as rich. The Bible is really particular, especially in the Gospels, in the way that it names people. So Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, is going to be a Pharisee. Nicodemus is going to be an important individual. And Nicodemus is going to have a name. He's Nicodemus. In the next chapter, there's going to be a story about a Samaritan woman who's a Samaritan and a woman. She's not going to have a name in the text, but she's identified in a way that captures who she is, a Samaritan woman. This is a rich young man, and the rich young man runs to the feet of Jesus because the rich young man is in search and in quest of eternal life. And in the search and in the quest of eternal life, he approaches Jesus. So he's right there. He's got something good going there. As he approaches Jesus, he starts this discourse with Jesus, and he begins to speak to Jesus. And the first thing he says to Jesus in verse 17, sorry, verse 18, no, verse 17, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him there, and Jesus says, no one is good. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And then immediately after that, Jesus goes on to quote the last six of the Ten Commandments. So he goes on to quote the last six of the Ten Commandments to this man. And the man says to him, I've followed all of these since I've been a young child. Then Jesus looks at him. He looks at this rich young man. And Jesus says to him, okay, but you're missing one thing. There's just one thing that you're missing. So remember, the beginning of the story, this guy comes to the feet of Jesus. He's in search of eternal life. This guy follows the last six commandments, and he has since he was a young child. And Jesus says to him, you're missing one thing. And Jesus says to him, um, I need you to sell all of your possessions and come and follow me. Then the continents, the King James says, the continents of the rich young man fell. And he turned and he walked away. And he turned and he walked away because his things were more important at that point in his life than Jesus. So his continents fell and he walked away. And we'll get into the back half of the discourse with Jesus and his disciples towards the end. Let's talk about this for a few minutes. I find three things incredibly interesting about this second story. The first thing I find interesting about this third story is this. 
in verse 19, Jesus only talks about the last six of the Ten Commandments. When he says to him, (laughs) the water just keeps jumping. I'm going to leave it there. Jesus says to them, the last six. And he answers them with what I believe with gusto. Yes, I followed those commandments all of my life. I've done those things all of my life. But then when Jesus calls him to sell all of his possessions and sell all of his things, he can't. He can't. You see, I believe that Jesus quotes to him the last six commandments and then asks him to sell all of his things because the first four commandments are imperative to the last six. The Ten Commandments are one picture of the law of God. And in the first four commandments, what you're going to find is a whole lot of talk about idol worship. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not put up a graven image. You shall not create a god, but you shall worship me alone. That's the talk that's going to happen in those first four commandments. And you see, my friends, what happened to the rich young ruler is what happens to us. You see, what the rich young ruler wanted was the rich young ruler wanted to retain his identity as a rich man and at the same time have eternal life. You see, what the rich young ruler wanted was to have his cake and to eat it too. What the rich young ruler wanted was eternal life. What the rich young ruler wanted was a picture of heaven and not Jesus. And you see what can happen to us sometimes in our lives is we can come to church, we can come to the building, we can be in ABFs, we can join a missional community, we can do all sorts of things in a quest to find eternal life, but our identities never shift Our identities never shift. We're still the businessman. We're still the dentist. We're still the teacher. We're still the African-American male. Our identities are still steeped in things that we want them to be steeped in and not steeped in who Jesus is. Jesus calls him to lay down his identity. He's been identified in this whole text as a rich man, and Jesus calls him to leave that. Jesus calls him to turn away from those things and to follow him. But when the rubber meets the road, his countenance falls, and he turns in the direction of his stuff. He turns in the direction of his own identity and not in the direction of Jesus. And Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, in the same way he called the rich young ruler, is calling us today. Are we trying to maintain a dual citizenship with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God? 
Is our perception in our communities? Is our core identity more important than following Jesus? My wife and I live on the south side of Akron. We live right behind Garfield High School, and we disciple boys who I coached in football from Garfield High School. Praise God, about a month ago, eight of them received Jesus at a retreat. They came to know the goodness of Jesus Christ. Praise God. And as we begin to disciple them, hip-hop is just huge in our community. And a guy named Kendrick Lamar came out with an album. And on Kendrick Lamar's album, what he does is he spoon-feeds the urban context a false gospel, a Hebrew-Israelite gospel that says that our ethnic identity as African-Americans is as important or more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our work in discipleship for them is to say to them, yes, we've been oppressed as a people group. Yes, you are still oppressed by the educational inequities that exist in Akron. Yes, you are still oppressed, but we serve a God named Jesus. And that God named Jesus is the one who we follow. And all other identities, all other labels become secondary in light of the glory of his grace. All other identities. And he did not want to drop his identity as a rich young man. He wanted to keep his stuff. He wanted to keep his stuff. My friends, I ask you this question. Which posture will you take? Which posture will you take? Will you take the posture of a child? Will you take the posture of my little guy Beckett? posture of a little guy who wants to be around his father, the posture of a little guy who throws his arm up in worship because his father throws his arm up in worship? Will you take the posture of a child who in faith follows their father? Or will you take the posture of the rich young ruler who wanted his identity more than he wanted to follow Jesus. And you see the question for us is when we strip away facades, like when we strip away our church clothes, when we strip away our Facebook posts, when we strip away the Christian culture and all the Christian books and all of the things that we do, to prove that we're a Christian. You see, the rich young ruler had proof because he did a whole bunch of things. In the whole, in the whole second half of the Ten Commandments, I've done those since I've been a child. He did a lot of things. And you see, my friends, we can do a whole lot of things. We can vote for the right person. We can go the right places. We can talk in the right way. We can hang around the right people. We can live in the right communities. 
But my friends, when the rubber meets the road, are we taking the posture of a child who is following Jesus? Or are we taking the posture of the rich young ruler whose identity is more important than following Jesus? When it's all stripped down, are we taking that posture? And as we close right now, let's have a little bit of church. In my tradition, in the African-American tradition, it's called call and response. So what it means is I need you to actually respond to me so we can close this morning. So what's going to happen is I'm going to say a statement, and you're going to say amen. Let's practice real quick (laughs) so we can get this down as we close. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I just needed just a little just with a little more conviction. Jesus is Lord. Amen. All right, so let's close this morning. In Hebrews chapter 11, what you're going to find is the hall of fame of faith. Some like to call it the hall of faith. Since we're in the hall of fame city, I figured it was cool that we talked about the hall of fame of faith. In the hall of faith, what you're going to find is a collected story of individuals who said when the rubber meant the road, I am going to follow Jesus versus my identity, versus the culture, versus everything else. I'm going to follow my identity. Amen. Amen. We're going to get it eventually. (laughs) In that hall of faith, he talks about a man named Abraham. A man named Abraham had a lot. Abraham was rich. He had a lot of cattle, but when God called Abraham, God called him to go and to seek a city whose builder and maker was God. And Abraham turned away from what he knew, and Abraham went and he followed God. Abraham went on faith and he followed. He turned away. He had the posture of a child and not the posture of the rich young man. Abraham is an exemplar of faith. Let's talk about Noah for a second. God gives Noah a word, and he says it's going to rain, even though it had never, ever, ever rained before. But God gave him a word, and the people around him said that he was crazy. It would have been pretty easy for him to remember the people who were around him and for him to listen to them, but he didn't listen to him. His posture was not that of which he's seen, but his posture was that as of a child, and he followed Jesus. Let's keep talking for a second. Let's talk about Moses. Moses was raised in an Egyptian household. Moses seen his people being beaten. Moses goes and he kills the Egyptian. Moses goes into exile on a mount called Midian. And when he's in exile on that mount called Midian, what happens? He has an encounter with God and God calls him. And he could have very easily, he even tried for a second. I don't speak well. I can't do this. But at the end of the day, Moses did not follow his identity. Moses could have said, hey, I can't speak. I can't do this. I'm going to go hide in a cave. But what Moses did is Moses went and he followed the way of God. And Moses went towards Jesus. And I ask you this morning, church, are you steeped in your identity? Yeah. 
or will you follow Jesus? Which posture this morning, church, will you take? Will you take the posture of I am this, I do this, and when the rubber meets the road, outside of the Christian facade, outside of the Facebook status and posts, outside of everything else, in your heart will you ask yourself, when the rubber meets the road, am I going to take the posture of the rich young ruler, or am I going to take the posture of a child? Am I going to follow Jesus with everything that I am? With everything that I am. In closing, my friends, we're going to sing some songs. As we sing songs, I challenge you. Strip it down. Strip it down. The altar's open if you need it. If you need to come up and you need to have a time where you strip down, And in obedience, you come up and you say, Jesus, am I following my identity? Is my posture one of the rich young ruler? And if it is, church, I challenge you, repent. God is gracious and God is good. And for those who confess and repent, there is forgiveness. Amen. Let's strip down. Let's take the posture of a child. Pray with me, please. Great God and Father, King of the universe, Master and Savior, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains eternal truths that speak into our lives today. And God, as you've spoken through your word, I pray today as a church that we would take the posture of a child and that in faith we would follow you no matter what the situation is, no matter what it looks like, no matter what hurdles are in the way. God, I pray that in our hearts we wouldn't just have masks and facades of following you. But God, I pray that we would be a people who follow you. Because God, in your kingdom, even though we may be leaving something, you say in this very text, first will be last and the last will be first and God we thank you for that God I pray that your spirit would minister to our hearts during this time as we examine as we worship as we confess as we repent as a community and as a body we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Amen